Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Stab in the Dark, the UK TV podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama, that invites them over for a cosy chat, cooks up some liver and onions, throws in some fava beans, and washes it down with a nice glass of Chianti. (laughs) Ah, liver and onions, that takes me back. My name's Mark Billingham, and don't worry, this isn't a cookery special. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by one of the world's best-selling crime writers. The only recipes to be found in her crime novels involve compelling plots and beautifully drawn characters. Oh, and grits. There's usually grits. Award-winning American author Karen Slaughter has sold over 30 million books worldwide, and in today's episode, I'll be talking to Karen about her home state of Georgia, serial killers, and her brand new novel, The Good Daughter. And grits, whatever the hell they are. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Thank you for joining us, Karen. Um, Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. We will be talking about The Good Daughter, uh, which I loved a bit later. But I want to start off by talking to you about your home state of Georgia. Um, We've... Through the series, we've spoken to a lot of people about their hometowns and cities and how important they are when it comes to their work. So we've talked about Baltimore, London, Cardiff, Manchester. I might even have mentioned Birmingham. But I want to talk to you about Georgia. Um, what's it like? I mean, you based your first two series, the Grant County series and the Will Trent series there. You've always lived there. Do you ever think about being anywhere else? No. <laughs> Thank well, you. That was a stab in the dark. Um no, you clearly love it. I mean, it, it, I do, it, and you've been there. Yes, and you've had fried chicken and uh, grits. And I certainly have. All that did stuff. I have grits? Did you make me have grits? I did. Yeah, but they were probably cheesy ones, right? You have yeah. to flavor them up. They were something. cheese. Okay. lots of butter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Um, but uh, I just I love it, and I I love all the misconceptions that are out there because most people who are not in America they think of Gone with the Wind when they right. think of Georgia and Atlanta or the Olympics. And we've changed a little bit since then. So I like to talk about the city, how dynamic it is, and kind of a, a cosmopolitan city. We have a lot of Fortune 500 companies there. We're very diverse. I'm a minority in Atlanta. Right. Uh, we're 60% African-American. So it, it's a, a very different city from what people think. And, you know, it's interesting because when I travel in Europe and here, um, they're much more open to... Atlanta as a modern city, but when I'm in America, especially in New York, they just have this idea we're down there burning crosses and drinking <laughs> mint juleps and, okay. and that sort of thing. So, On the veranda. Exactly. Yeah. And they'll say to me, how do you live in such a racist area? And I think, gosh, you've been to New York. It's one of the most homogenous cities in America, especially if you're in publishing. Uh-huh. But I, but I, but there is that, uh, I did a, I did a sort of, you know, boys midlife crisis road trip last year down through sort of Nashville and Memphis. Midlife, really. Okay, leave it. Um, and late life. More and bucket list. Thank you very much, Karen. And uh, there is, there is, the South is different, isn't it? It, it is. It, it, it is different. If you only know New York and Chicago and that kind of place, there's a politeness. There is a kind of politeness, which is, you know, if you know New York, you kind of go, whoa, what? I guess it's like, I, I guess it's the difference between London and, I don't know, 
up north where they're friendlier. Well, and it's genuine as well. And a lot of people don't understand that, that when you say, how are you doing? People really mean that. So if you say, well, I'm not doing well, they'll, they'll invite you to sit down and talk about it generally. Uh, whereas someone on the West Coast, if you say, uh, I'm not doing well, they just kind of say, oh, sorry, and run away. Right. Um, but if you think about who settled the different areas, you're in Florida sometimes, yeah. so you know it was mostly Spanish. Yeah. And it's a very different feel in Florida. Even the closer you get to Georgia, and we had more English people in that area, uh, and, and Irish people, the, the, it's just a different flavor. Or if you go to Minnesota, there's a lot of people from Finland. Uh, if the, you go to... Uh, Germany, a, ger- a lot of Germans are in Colorado and in Texas. You know, Bush is a German uh. name. So it, it just, it every different state, really, you can trace the roots back to who settled it. But why, now Grant County is, Grant County obviously a fictional place. Why did you decide to write about a fictional kind of small place? Well, you know, I didn't want assholes writing in saying, you know, you can't go left on Main Street. But still, I got that. Right. You but, and you get that when you write about Atlanta. I do. And it's interesting because, you know, so I write about Atlanta now and in the 1970s. And the street names are different. We change them all the time. Um, a lot of a lot of times that's good because a street might be named after a Grand Wizard from the Clan, <laughs> so nice. there's a movement to change that street name, which is a positive thing. Um, you know, not many streets are named after women, oddly enough. But uh, you know, so it, it's a real challenge to get maps from the 1970s, and and even like within the 70s they started changing names. That's when a lot of the racists got streets named after them because there was this um, kind of fighting against the civil rights movement so a lot of times you'll see state flags during the 60s were changed so that they had the confederate flag on them and it was in direct response to the civil rights movement so i think that's just it's cyclical and it's changed it's changed and it changes back and it changes again okay well look let's talk about books which is why we're here i guess um so the start i mean what major character i guess sarah linton in the grant county books and then you and there were other characters who we will talk about. Um, then you went on to write about Will Trent. Then you moved Sarah across into the Will Trent books. Was that always the plan to kind of have this sort of fictional universe where people were going to come and go between books and standalones that turn into series and that kind of thing? Yes and no, because I, I, around my third or fourth book, I thought I've got I can't keep writing about Grant County because there's just pedophiles and murderers and rapists. I mean, it was like Congress or something. <laughs> and uh, so I knew that I would need a change. I didn't want to be Agatha Christie writing about the you know this these small communities. Yeah, where everybody and, knows everybody's exactly, business. Exactly. Yeah, and also you know. I mean, at a, at a really just simple level, you and I both know authors who get a great paycheck for writing the same book over and over again, and they're really good at it, and people love it, but that's not the kind of writer I want to be, right? Yeah. And, and I don't think it's the kind of writer you want to be. You know, we want to do something different. We want to tell new stories. We want to grow as writers, and that that's why I made the change is I just I thought I can't keep doing this, and so about the third or fourth book, I thought... You know, something's got to change. And actually, you figured it out. I know you don't remember this because we did this interview that was on my website. About three people listened to it. Uh, Obviously, you weren't one of them. (laughs) Um, 
And you said, I think I know where you're going with this. And I thought, oh, my God, if someone as stupid as Mark can figure it out, is it that obvious? Uh, but I guess, I don't know, well, broken yeah. clock's right at least once so, a day. Yeah, but the, the one thing I didn't figure out, and I know we've spoken about this before, uh, obviously, you, you know, you're not afraid of taking big decisions when it comes to the to the writing. And I remember lying on a, lying on a beach on my holidays reading Skin Privilege. Mm-hmm. And turning the last page and going, oh, my God. And then, like, emailing you the next day going, what have you done? That's the uh, response a lot of people right. have. Well, well, well if, you, if you're listening, I'm not going to say exactly what Karen did, but what Karen did was kill off a, a major character. Um, and are you still getting flack? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everywhere mile. I go. Everywhere I go. I got some, some people in Germany. I was there a few weeks ago. They brought me some chocolates. And they had written on the box, you know, thank you for touring Germany. P.S. We'll never forgive you for this. And it's, it's been 10 years. I mean, it's, I guess it's a weird mixture of kind of irritation and flattery. Because yeah, if, yeah. You know, if that character meant so much to them, that's, you've done a good thing, right? Well, it's not, it's not irritation, really. I, I don't get irritated. I'm not like you in, in that, that I get really irritated with people. You have a hair trigger temper. I could yeah, go at any moment. I'm not going to slap a baby or anything. But, you know, when I, when I toured with that book, we were at BoucherCon, and that's the mystery convention in um, America. And so I got on this elevator, and there was a group of woman, women. This is the last time I wore a badge, actually, that had my name on it. So I get on the elevator, and they're all talking and laughing. Then I get on, and they stop. And I turn around, and I, I feel like they're going to stab me. I mean, it was really uncomfortable. And I thought, i got to get off this freaking elevator before someone does something. I just, I'm, I'm in fear of my safety. So I said, oh, I left my purse downstairs, and I hit the next button to get off. And as the doors were closing behind me, this woman screamed, we'll never forgive you. It's a very weird thing. It is. It is a, I mean, I, I did a, um, uh, a signing uh, a few years ago at BoucherCon sitting next to Lee, mm-hmm. child. And the Reacher movie yeah. was coming out. Oh, my God. And it hadn't quite come out. Right. People were screaming at him. I mean, literally screaming, how could you do this? And Lee's like being, you know, endlessly polite, going, well, wait till you see the movie right. and whatever. But it was like, this is our character. Right. How could you do that? And he said that's, that same thing. He said, well, this isn't necessarily pleasant. But if the character means that much to them, I must be doing something right. Right. And Tom Cruise is like the biggest movie star. Right. Right. So, I mean... Come on. I think they're good movies too, actually. I do too. And does yeah. it change the book? I don't see. Do you, does anybody see Tom Cruise when no. they open up a Jack Reacher novel? No, I, I see don't Lee. think so. Um, so, the, obviously, a very rich history of, of Southern Gothic from the part of the world that yep. you're from. So, did those people, Flannery O'Connor, w- w- William Faulkner, Carson McCullers, influence you growing up? Well, yeah, especially Flannery O'Connor. Um, I've, I've never been a big Faulkner fan, I have to admit. I know. Don't right. look at me like that. I'm plotting. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure he was a plotter. Yeah, yeah. TT, right? Not mm. DD. Mm. Plotter. Plotter. Um, plotter. Plotter. Okay. Yeah. Do you know um, the weird thing? Whenever I'm in America, we're going way off beam here, and I'm in a supermarket. Uh-huh. If I go, excuse me, could you tell me where the butter is? They go, excuse me? And I go, the butter. I'm sorry? The butter. It's over there. Yeah. They do not understand double T's in America. Yeah. What is it? yeah. Uh, anyway. I don't know. Maybe you're saying it wrong. Maybe I am. Sorry. I don't know why well, you have to blame 350 million people. You were just slagging off William Faulkner. Yes. Um, so, yeah, O'Connor. I loved O'Connor. And my ninth grade English teacher gave me a collection of short stories. And she was the, the teacher, the, the most important teacher in my life because she said, you're good at writing, but you could be better. And I really learned from O'Connor two things. One is, you know, I was a, a, a woman in a small southern town being told 
you know, sit, sit up straight, always cross your legs. Don't, don't, uh, be too smart. Let the boys talk more, that sort of thing. Don't be interested in crime stories or at least admit that you are. And reading O'Connor, I was like, holy shit. Not only is she kind of an unusual woman in a small Southern town, but she's internationally celebrated for telling these very, shocking stories and as a kid i just concentrated on the violence and you know the the kind of crazy elements of the writing but later when i studied her in college especially i saw the symbolism of it and how she used violence not just to shock but as a way of holding up a mirror to society and she also she she wrote the way people i knew spoke in that colloquial language and i thought just as as developing myself as a writer, I think that taught me to write the way people speak, which a lot of people forget when they write. Yeah, I mean, that's important, isn't it? A book that really speaks to you where you go, I know these people, I right. recognize these people. Right. Um, now, obviously, the probably most famous book to come come out of the South is, is Gone with the Wind. And I know you you were at an event last night where you were talking about this book, a book I'm ashamed to say I've never read. You should Is that be. a terrible thing? You should be. There's lots of sex and murder in it. Is there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Scarlett was a lot more slutty. She married a few more times. <laughs> she had more children, and she just, you, you know, they were great. They're really f- convenient fictional children because they only show up to move the plot along. And, you know, in the movie, you've seen the movie at least. Yes, I've seen the movie. Well, Leslie Howard had never read the book, and he wouldn't take any notes on the, the character of Ashley Wilkes. So he was just, I think that's probably why uh, an entire generation of Americans thought that Englishmen were concave chests, milk toast, which, I mean, obviously some still are. But um, no offense, Mark. Thank you. Uh, but he didn't play the character as it was written in the book. He just kind of phoned it in. And, and so you think, why would someone like Scarlett O'Hara like this guy when you watch the movie? But he's a, a much more compelling character. And in the book, Scarlett's a bit more... Yeah, she is. Well, you know, Margaret Mitchell, her mother was a suffragist. She worked. She worked at the Atlanta Journal newspaper, and she did crazy assignments. Like, she would do a day in the life. So she did a a day in the life of a brick pointer, and she hung off the side of a building and pointed bricks. And then she did a day in the life of someone who delivered coal and and things like that. And, you know, there was a novelty to it because she was a woman. But she was pretty daring to do these kinds of jobs. Why only one book? Well, I mean, of course, she got hit by a car, so that kind of ended things. Yeah, okay. she was hit uh, by a, a taxi driver who was drunk on Peachtree Street. Okay. Yeah, but it took her ten years to write Gone with the Wind, and she was very insecure about her work. And actually, uh, some New York uh, editor went to the South and was touring the South looking for Southern writers because they were very popular at the time. This was right after the Depression. And he was specifically looking for writers. And because she worked at the newspaper and because she was a woman, they said, oh, well, Peggy will show you around town. And everywhere she took this guy, people would say, well, Peggy's been working on this book. No one's seen it, but you should see it. And it so pissed her off that they were teasing her about this book she had written that she finally, the day the guy was leaving on a train, she finally came with a manuscript and said, okay, you can read it. And he had to buy a suitcase to put it in. Uh, and and there's, the suitcase is actually at the Margaret Mitchell Museum. So oh, he wow. bought the suitcase and put it in. By the time he got to Mississippi, uh, she, she had a, a telegram waiting for him saying, send it back. I don't want you to read it. It's awful. Don't do it. And he wrote back and said, too late. I want to publish it. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. So, well, in, in a grinding change of gears now, I want to talk to you about serial killers. Um, at the end of the, the 70s, there was a hor- horrific uh, serial killer case where 28 African-American kids and adults went missing and were found murdered. Um, so what, what do you remember that case? Do you remember that time, what the atmosphere was like? Absolutely. You know, if any one thing uh, kind of fostered my interest in crime, it was this case. And I had always been in- interested in kind of dark things. You know, I, I, I was already from six years old. I know you don't believe this. I have the book, though. I, I, I was started writing. And most of my stories, since I'm the youngest of three, were about my sisters dying or being murdered or mutilated or that kind of stuff. We, we're going to talk about sibling rivalry in, in some <laughs> detail later on. Go on. Um, <laughs> It's no rivalry on my part. Okay. I won. It's all their fault. Um, yeah. But so I was always interested in darker things. But then when these murders started happening, it really changed my life. Because, you know, just from a selfish level as a kid, I couldn't go outside and, and play where I wanted to play. And, and before the murders, my mom would literally lock the door and tell us not to come in uh, during the summer. And if we needed to go to the restroom, she said we had woods by our house and she would leave the faucet on outside for the hose. And that's where we would get water if we got thirsty. And we were just expected to play all day. And I mean, we got lunch, but we weren't, we weren't meant to bother her. Right. Uh, and that was totally okay. Cause we lived in this town and everybody knew us and we were fine. Well, then the, the murders started happening. Yeah. And after that, <laughs> now you can come in the house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what well, the strange thing is, I mean, we've done a lot of episodes of this show, but actually serial killers is something we haven't r- really talked about. Um, which is quite remarkable. You've written about them. I've written about them. Crime, a lot of crime writers write about them. What, what is it about the serial killer that do you think, makes us carry on writing about them, makes readers want to read about them? From a writer's standpoint, I think it's a little easier because of the randomness. And serial killers are driven by this internal motivator to do bad. You know, most murders are really stupid. Mm. Somebody's annoyed and they grab a knife or a gun and they immediately regret it. There's not a lot of planning. There aren't really any Hannibal Lecters. Even Hannibal Lecter was based on a, a guy named Ed Gein who was not particularly smart. Right. <laughs> you know, so th- that that cunning serial killer thing is not really out there. No, they don't. I mean, we had Fred West and, and Rose West and, and Fred West couldn't read or write. Right. But there's a kind of animal cunning there's a kind of different kind of intelligence which i think is fascinating isn't it yeah yeah and and you can explore that and i don't like the the you know when you think about a serial killer novel you always think in italics right because the serial killer's evil <laughs> thoughts are in italics yeah yeah, yeah. first person italics. yeah yeah and i i can't stand that i don't know about you i think i think the great serial killer novels you know red dragon and silence of the lambs spawned a lot of really terrible mm-hmm. uh, imitations. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know how Raymond Chandler used to have that thing about if you're stuck for a, something to do in a plot, have somebody come through the, the door with a gun. Those kind of novels would like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. We'll have another body. Right. And you end up with 24 bodies and somebody going, he must kill again when the moon is full. Right. And they're just, they're terrible because you never get to, you never get to care about the victims. That's one of the things with those novels. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, I mean, you, you, you uh, Cop Town, you know, uh, 2014 novel, uh, a serial cop killer. Mm-hmm. Why did you want to tell that story? Well, uh, you know, a couple of reasons. Really, it was a device for me to talk about the divisions I was seeing because you had a lot of guys who were white men who had just come from the war who were very angry that America was changing. 
And in the 1970s in Atlanta, we went from a majority white population to a majority African-American. And suddenly our government was African-American in Atlanta. We had the first African-American mayor of any major American city who wasn't indicted a year later. Detroit had one too, but he was sent to prison. Uh, And Maynard Jackson was really someone who uh, could stand on that line between black and white because all he cared about was green money. Mm -hmm. And he courted Coca-Cola. He got them invested in the community. He really, he made Atlanta an enterprise zone for black Americans. And so a lot of them came to the city. We have these five historically black colleges and a lot of them graduate doctors and lawyers. We have the largest uh, African-American middle class of any a ma- major American city. So a lot of people were really pissed off that that was happening. And they blamed black people for the fact that the economy was bad and they were losing their jobs when really it was automation and globalization that was taking their jobs. And, and I mean, I, I could be talking about right now. So there was just this very disaffected white middle class, very angry, and they didn't know what to do with it. And so a lot of people acted out in a violent way. We will be talking lots more to Karen after the break, but before then, it's that time in the show when our roving reporter goes out and about to bring you more of the best crime fiction and TV crime drama. So with that, it's over to our man with the spyglass, Paul Hirons, who spoke to the brilliant British author Stephen Mosby. Over to you, Paul. Yes, thanks, Mark. I'm here with Steve Mosby. Steve, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Hi, hi there. Thank you for having me. Now, um... You've been writing for quite a while now, and you're well known for your really dark stories. And in our episode, Mark's been talking to Karen Slaughter, right? Okay, who is also well known for her dark stories. Indeed, yeah. Um, so, what is it? She's about... slightly better known than me for her dark <laughs> stories, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Um, what is it? What was the fascination with dark stories? Both for you, have you always been into the kind of darker side of things? Yeah, I think so. Ever since, uh, well, I mean, I remember reading Stephen King in my teens and everything like that. That was the kind of fiction that interested me. But I kind of think everybody is sort of interested in it in a way, which is why the crime genre has such a huge readership. You know, people might like to pretend they're all genteel, um, but, you know, everybody is interested in it deep down. Uh, And I think that that crime novels are just um, uh, dark crime novels. It's all kind of uh, battling evil, battling monsters and things like that. And they're they're kind of very sort of, um, you know, traditional core stories that are important to people in society. I think everybody's interested deep down in this kind of thing. Mm. And we had a a panel here at Harrogate about endearing monsters. Yes. The overriding sense from the panellists was that uh, it's much more fun to write about really dark people. Uh, Would you say that yeah definitely i think so i mean everybody yeah the, the appeal of the monster nobody wants to really read a story about somebody who's just really really nice and really really good and everything and they just have a really easy time and everything's lovely um you know because that's not really a story you need kind of a an antagonist and i think it can be really interesting sometimes if you have a, a main character who is deeply unlikable in some ways but you can make the audience warm to them um yeah i mean that, I mean, that was a that was a great panel i mean uh, mccarran was on it his jackson lamb books uh, kind of an example of that jackson lamb is kind of this report figure almost but at the same time he's completely endearing you know you kind of warm to him and I think that's that must be the skill as a writer a bad character who does very very bad things has to have some chinks of 
something that you, as a reader, that you can empathise with and kind of go, oh, is he that bad? I mean, oh, yes, he is. But, you know, it's that kind of roller coaster ride. Yeah, I mean, very much. And even with the, the, the worst characters, I suppose, you have to kind of, this is a traditional bit of wisdom, but everybody is the main character in their own story. So even if they're the bad guy in yours, you know, you have to kind of understand that they have their reasons for doing what they're doing. And, you know, to them, they make sense. Um, and so you have to kind of see it from their perspective. Um, so let's talk about your latest book, You Can Run. You've been yeah. doing this for about a decade now, haven't you? I think 2003 I was first right. published, so yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us about You Can Run. From what I know about it, it's got a fantastic premise and it sounds really amazing. Thank you. It's um, The premise came from uh, reading about serial killers. There was a serial killer in the in the US in the 60s and 70s called Jerry Brudos and a car crashed into his house while he was away uh, and there was there was a, a, one of his victims was in there and the police attended the scene but didn't notice uh, and left a kind of card for him to get in touch when he got back, which is just this astonishing kind of coincidence that there was an accident while he was away and there was a body there, and then that the police didn't, it was like a double coincidence, and he went on to kill again. Um, and I, w- I was just kind of fascinated by that. And the premise for You Can Run is, is similar. There is a serial killer uh, called the Red River Killer who's been uh, abducting people for like 17 years. And while he's away, a car crashes. Uh, but there's a living victim at the scene. The police find her, uh, but the killer is not there. And they don't know where he is. Uh, and so he knows that he's being hunted. And the police kind of have to sort of track him down. Uh, and, and of course, it's more complicated than that. As the main character gets into it, you know, he begins to you know doubt the official story and see sort of complications behind the scenes. Um, I've always been fascinated, actually, um, as a writer, when you're writing about bad things, as a lot of crime writers do, um, do you find it easy to kind of walk away at the end of a session of writing to kind of, do you know what I mean, to get that distance away from awful yeah. things yeah I mean I don't find that too much of a, a problem in the sense that writing the kind of, I don't I don't like to include too much awful stuff I like to kind of skirt around it a bit but in a sense those scenes are sort of easier to write because they're quite exciting they're quite visceral they're quite you know they're, they're visual they're you know and you can approach them on a technical level you know as you're writing you are just kind of writing words and kind of like editing words and everything so it becomes quite a sort of formal exercise whatever you're doing uh, but for me probably the hard ones are the more emotional scenes you know I mean uh, the last scene of the book which I enjoyed writing uh, it was probably the hardest because it was, it was it was much more emotional. So you kind of get into it more, I think. So, uh, do you ever think about writing romantic fiction or anything like as a break? Or? <laughs> I don't know. I think all mine are romances. To, 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 to sort of, you know, you've got to have a bit of everything. I Absolutely. think it's going to be a melting pot. But no, I can't see myself writing a kind of Mills and Boone kind of. Uh, yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Steve. And no with that, pleasure. It, it's back to you, Mark, in the studio. Thanks, Paul, and I can heartily recommend Steve's latest novel, The Brilliant, You Can Run. Uh, So I'm back here with my very special guest, Karen Slaughter. Now, Karen, before we get to The Good Daughter, which is fantastic, I just want to talk to you briefly how you got started. Uh, You mentioned in part one that you'd always wanted to be a writer, that you still got your first book. What's that first book called, by the way? Uh, Rolio with Polio. (laughs) It was based on a a true story. It's not a mystery. No, well, maybe... Uh, I, my dad had this guy who worked for him who was really overweight, and he had been overweight his entire life, but as a child he had polio, and they thought because of his weight he would never walk again. So I wrote the story about how he learned to walk, and weirdly he did not want to buy a copy. Oh, really? Is yeah. there only one copy? There's two, yeah. So what, you both written out in ha- by hand? And illustrated, yeah. You did the illustrations? Yeah. Pictures of Rolio? Yeah. With polio? Yeah. So, like, picture a balloon with sticks underneath it for legs. I want to see this book. I so want to My see My dad this book. has one. It's his retirement plan, okay. I think. <laughs> but you put, you, you, put in, you, know, you put in a lot of hard work, you know, getting up at five, 
writing at weekends, all that sort of stuff. Um, now, you know, you're, I think it's fair to say you're established. Uh, oh, thanks. I think so. Yeah. I think I think you, there might be a career in this, Karen. Um, what's your process like now? Do you, do you have a special writing place? Do you have a kind of daily word count, all that kind of stuff that people think we we do when we yeah. probably don't? Yeah. I well, I do have a I have a cabin in the North Georgia mountains, and my dad built it. I mean, he made me pay for it, but uh, he yeah. built it. And I just go up there and sequester myself. I'm away from everybody. I don't really check email, or I, people don't call me. I have TV. I won't live like an animal, but I just have to be me in the story. And I can work 12-hour days, 15, 16-hour days. And I don't, yeah, I don't keep track of word count. I do kind of pages. And if I'm in a, in a really good day, I can do about 30 pages. And it's been it's been a book a year, at least a book yeah, a year yeah. since you started. Um, and this year we have The Good Daughter. Now, there's also a pr- sort of prequel to The Good Daughter, a novella called The Last Breath. How, how do those two books fit together? What's the kind of relationship between those? Well, they all have Charlie in them. And, um, you know, in the opening of The Good Daughter, we meet her when she's 13. And then we jump 28 years later um, when she's uh, hitting her 40s. And I thought, I want to check in with her. Uh, in kind of in the middle of her life because as a woman you know when you're a teenager you have no idea what you're doing you know it's just a crazy time period and your priorities are so mixed you can't even pin down one thing and then you know you get into your 20s and you're concentrating on college and you're freaking out about finding a job and all that in your 30s you're kind of settled into your job and and married or starting a family or whatever in your 40s you're like (laughs) <laughs> what happened to yeah. the last 40 years, you know? Uh, and so I, I, I liked the juxtaposition of her, you know, from 13 into uh, closer to 40 because you get to see, you know, the, the promise of her and then this awful thing happens when she's a kid and how that affects her as an adult. Um, but I wanted to check in with her in her 30s and, and just really see how she is and, and, you know, what she was doing as a person then. Because uh, one of the goals in The Good Daughter was I wanted to write about a woman who was in love with her husband. Because you don't really read that, especially in crime fiction. Usually that's the end. No, absolutely. And so I wanted to talk about where she was with Ben at that point in her life and, and why that relationship was so important to her. Uh, so that it, it resonates a little more if you read it and, and go into The Good Daughter. Now, obviously, a, a, another hugely famous book to come out of the South is To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. And I think I'm right in saying that... that Sort of the genesis for this book or, or the spark for this book was a discussion that you were having with someone about the second Harper Lee book about Ghost right. and Watchmen and you yeah. decided to write about lawyers. Am I right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know Greg Isles that well, but he's probably going to kill me because I've been talking about this conversation we had, right. which, you know, bring it. Um, <laughs> but, you could uh, take him. I think you could take him. I could take him. Yeah. Uh, so we were all, we, you know, one of these big, Apple had done this big publishing dinner at Thriller Fest. So it was me and Sarah Bladel was there and um, all, all the, the authors who were lucky enough to get invited for a free meal. And Greg was sitting across from me. And um, the excerpt for Watchmen had just come out that minute from the New York Times and revealed that Atticus Finch had gone to this Klan meeting. And, and Greg was really upset because he, he said, I just don't see that happening. And I said, and, you know, because we're both from the South. Um, I mean, he's Mississippi, so that's kind of a different kind of South. But uh, we were arguing about whether or not this educated man 
would be interested in that kind of thing. And I, I had just looked into a case in Atlanta of a guy named Leo Frank in the 1900s who ran a pencil factory, and he was from the Northeast, and he was Jewish. Uh, and a, a girl at his factory, a 14-year-old girl, Mary Fagan, was raped and murdered, and her body was left at the factory. And, of course, since, you know, he was Jewish and he was from the North, everybody zeroed in on him. And eventually he ended up being lynched. And there are photographs of this lynching, because there are a lot of photographs people took, where they're standing proudly by mm-hmm. a hanged person. Um, and his neck is literally stretched. But if you look at the people in the photograph, you know, there's the son of a United States senator, there's a state senator, there's a chief of police, there's all these scions of society whose names are still on streets in Atlanta by this hanged man. And so I I disagreed with him. And um, since he's not here, I can tell you that I I was absolutely right. (laughs) Well, it, the book introduces us to the to the Quinn sisters, Charlie and Sam, and their father Rusty, who, in many ways, I guess, is the kind of is the yes, Atticus yeah. Finch figure. And one I mean, one of the massive strengths of this book, I think, is is the characterization because Rusty, uh, who's a fascinating character, on the face of it, is this kind of saintly character. He fights lost causes and, and champions the victims of injustice, but he's a terrible father. I mean, he, I, is he a good man? Is he a selfish man? Is he a stupid man? He's all those things, isn't right, he? And right. and you know. Which who came first, the father or the daughters? You know, actually, the mother came first. Oh, Gamma. Yeah, and so two and a half years ago, I wrote that line about her that I think is in the first paragraph that she's as her complexion is as pale as an envelope, and she's just as likely as inflicting tiny cuts in inconvenient places. Right. And that was, you know, sometimes you get a description of somebody and it just percolates in your head, and you don't really use it in the story you're working on, and and you just find the right fit for that and and that was certainly the case with her because I wanted to write about that kind of woman we're we're very fond as crime writers of saying oh plot comes from character you know we always kind of say that I think but in this is one of those books where I kind of thought you know what you could take the crime out of this Mm -hmm. you could take the crime out of this completely and it'd still be a captivating novel because it's so characterful did did you have you know rusty and gamma and charlie and sam and then and then oh then that I, I guess i need i need some kind of crime i need some reason to bring her i mean it felt like the characters were just uh, the most important thing in the book would that be wrong thing to say um no i it wouldn't but i would also say you know we both were really hard on plot and so i think the fact that the characters can stand so strongly means that the plot also works, right? Because you're not, it's not like some authors where you're, you think, oh, what beautiful characters, but what the happened, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hate those books. Or you get to the end and you think, what? Hey. Yeah. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. What happened? Right. So I wanted to make sure that the plot was there, but it, it's, it actually started with that first opening chapter. Right. That Which is an idea. astonishing opening chapter. I've got to say, long chapter, and just, you know, oh my God, when you finish it. And then you finish it, and there's the next chapter, and you do it again. Yeah. You, you kind of go, oh, now there's going to be a little breather, and there's going to be, you know, that kind of, mm-hmm. uh, and no, straight straight back into well, it again 28 the, years that's later. That's how the book started for me. You know, those first two chapters, before I started writing, I knew those first two chapters were going to look like that. And I wanted them, you know, I get a lot of um, questions. I won't say criticism, but I, I, I'm always questioned about the violence in my novels. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about violence in a bit. I figured. But, okay. I, you know, I think it's because you care about the characters. 
Yeah. And, and you know, if you think about, like we were talking about serial killer books where 30 people are right. murdered, that's pretty violent, you know? Yeah. I've got, what, three dead people in my book? And that's proper pornographic people. violence because that's violence against people who are just plot devices. Exactly. Victim 12, victim 17. You don't get to know them. You don't get to care about them. Right. You obviously cared about these characters so much. Mm-hmm. How hard was it to say goodbye to them? This, in theory, is a standalone. Yeah. Which I guess begs the question, is it really? Yeah. Are we going to see... We're not going to see Charlie I, or Sam know, again? I don't think it would be right to continue the story. Because, I, I mean, I'm saying that now. But, you, you know... <laughs> Like, I love Big Little Lies, and yeah. I, I really love the, the television adaptation that was done, but talking about a sequel, I just think sometimes you just got to leave it where it is, because yeah. you're going to ruin it if you keep going at it. Well, I think readers who've read this will be disappointed to hear that, because, you know, I could read about Charlie and Sam all over again. Uh, just before we talk about the serious issue of violence, boob sweat. Yeah. Is this a thing? Is this a thing you and your sisters Did you ask your wife do? about this? No. I, I've got to, the, got to the... Okay, I should explain to listeners who are going, what are you talking about? There's a scene where, where one sister is making the other sister a cup of tea mm-hmm. and wipes the tea bag underneath her boob mm-hmm. to get boob sweat on it. Mm-hmm. It's probably the most disturbing thing I've ever read in a crime novel. Of the entire to, novel. <laughs> the, the whole no, that, that's, I forgot everything else pages, at that point. That's what no, stuck that, out That's to a you. thing, is it? That's a kind of common thing? Well, my sisters did it to me. My older sister, <laughs> who was uh, seven years older, would chase me around the house and then put my head under her boob uh, when she was sweaty. Ah. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the strangest kind of notes I've ever written in a notebook when I've been reading a book knowing Boob I was sweat. going to talk to you. Ask Boob your, sweat? Ask, question mark? Ask question Claire mark? About it. Yeah, okay, yeah, all right, yeah. fine. Well, the um, other thing was um, every woman who's ever been in a public toilet has battled with that stupid sanitary disposal unit that they put right by the toilet so it presses against your butt. Mm-hmm. And I that, that joke about that where I said it should be called the that is uh, something every woman can relate to. You've been also. getting stuff off your chest. Yeah, in yeah, this book. yeah. I had a lot of agendas. Um, so, so let's talk about violence. <laughs> off your chest. <laughs> See what I did. Um, as a crime writer, obviously, you you feel a responsibility to show the unvarnished truth when it comes to violence, not just the act of violence, but what it what it does to the people that are left behind. And that really is what is what this book's about. Mm-hmm. The whole relationship between Charlie and Sam is completely coloured by what what happened to them 28 years ago. Don't want to give stuff away. It's so hard to talk about this book without spoilers. But something very terrible happens to these sisters. And then we cut to 28 years later. So when it comes to the actual violence, do you remember we spoke, we we, we had a conversation a few years ago and it was just after a well-known crime critic here had decided that she was no longer going to review books, which would certainly have included yours and mine, that had what she considered you know, graphic violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the time you were like, uh, I think it was fairly unprintable or unbroadcastable what you said. But do you still kind of stand by that, that that it's our responsibility to do that? Some of us. I don't think all of us. I mean, I I think anyone telling me not to write about it, I can't tell them to write about it, right? I think when you become a crime writer, you decide what kind of crime writer you're going to be. You know, you can be hard-boiled or noir or you can be modern or you can be cozy or you can talk about you know from a cat's perspective I mean there, there are all different kinds of ways you can write but for me and I think for you I chose to write about crime for what it is mm-hmm. and I, I love all kinds of different novels and, and I know you do too and I think they all have their place and we all love reading different types but w- the ones I really love are you or Mo Hader or Denise Mina or you know someone who's really going to 
tell me what's actually going on and talk about the procedure of investigation or, in this case, you know, how crime really affects everyday people. I mean, I know you were a victim of crime. Uh um, And you never are the same after that. I mean, even if your house is burgled, it doesn't even have to be what happened to you or sexual assault or someone you love is murdered. You never are that same person oh, again. Yeah, the smallest act of violence or even witnessing the smallest act right, of violence. You know, you right. see a fight in a bar and it, and it stays with you. It changes you. So how people can write these books when put these characters through horrendous things and pain and grief and loss and then they just bounce up again in the next book like nothing's happened. Right, right. You know, that, that offends me as a reader, not reading about violence. I mean, I do, I guess I have a line mm-hmm. when it comes to, I, do you, I mean, I, I would certainly go back and take some of the violence out of my early books would you, I, I think I put too much into it. I think less is more, and I think I've probably learned that. I think I threw the kitchen sink at it, but we do, right? Right. Early on. Well, also, I think that people believe they're more violent than they are. Yeah. And because a person, uh, someone came up to me a few years ago and said, Why do you write such beautiful, wonderful characters and then kill them? And I said, <laughs> I said, Well, you wouldn't care that they were killed if you didn't care about them as characters. And so I think when someone in your, one of your novels dies, and it resonates more. It feels more violent. Um, and, you know, conversely, I can kill 50 men in one novel and people will say that's not as violent as your other one where you kill one woman. Right. right? So right. It, it, it's really people bring their own perceptions to the work. It is interesting that thing you say about people go, oh, it was really violent. And you go, where? Right. And they go, well, oh, no, I thought it was. And it's. You feel like you've done your job then because what you've done is nudge their imagination towards those areas. Exactly. And they come up. It's like how your character has one beer and they go, oh, he's an alcoholic. Right. You, really? Right. Where, yeah. where does it say that? Um, so what's next, Karen? Uh, back, you know, back, you've been back up in the log cabin? You've been yes. In, yeah. What's, um, what's coming well, next? Well, I can't. It's not a Will Trent. That's oh, what hello. I can say. Yeah. You know, I guess it's like I know you feel this way about Thorne and, and your series characters. They, you kind of want to honor where they got you. So if you write a story about them, you want it to be the best story you can tell. And with Will Trent, I want to make sure that the story, I mean, everybody's like, oh, I want another Will Trent, you know, but I want to make sure that story is really good and on par with the other ones. I don't want to just write it because people want me to write it. So I'm working on another story that's a bit complicated and I have to talk to uh, some people in a different area of law enforcement for this story. uh, For for the Will Trent story. For the Will Trent story. But the one I'm working on now has an international flavor, and that's all I'll say. Oh, hello. Yes. Tra- uh, some traveling involved? Yes, yes. Oh. It's, there's an English person. And he there's says, an English person? Well, says, I hope Cheerio. you'll be asking them re- chip, chip. research questions. Yes, absolutely. You know, say it's not yeah. like Leicester Square, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Salisbury. <laughs> Salisbury. Now, uh, as promised, uh, in each episode we ask our guest or guests, but it's just guests on this occasion, to, to come with recommendations uh, for a good read and a good watch. So, Karen, we've talked about books a lot. What, what have you read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, well, I'm currently reading Hannah Kent's new novel that's not out yet. Oh, she wrote Burial Rites, yeah, right, which yeah. I love. I've not read the new one. Yeah, but. this one's set in Ireland and um, title to be given later. Uh, I can't remember it. And, uh, you know, I was in uh, Europe touring and I had just landed and I was very jet lagged and I was trying to stay awake. So I started reading the Eleanor Oliphant book uh-huh. and I, I couldn't get through the first chapter. I just thought, what the hell is this? I, yeah, I, you know, it's just such a horrible book. And then the next day someone said, what are you reading? And I said, I started this Eleanor, Eleanor Oliphant book. And they said, oh, I hear it's really funny. And I thought, oh, OK. 
it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> I was reading it straight because oh, okay. I was I was so jet lagged. But I really enjoyed that. Um, and I love Leanne Moriarty. Okay. Um, and what about something to watch? Something to watch. I really like Better Call Saul. Yeah, I never I never got got into. I watched about half of the of the first series and stopped. And Give now, it a now try. there's too many to catch up on. What's up to Netflix is for? And uh, the Americans. Yeah. I love the Americans. Okay. Well, some good recommendations there. And obviously, uh, The Good Daughter, uh, Karen's fabulous new novel. That's about it uh, for this episode of A Stab in the Dark. In this episode, what have we learned? We've learned what boob sweat is, and we can't unlearn it. Uh, And we've learned that Karen's debut novel is called Rolio with Polio. Uh, We'll be back again soon. But in the meantime, you can find out more about A Stab in the Dark at uktv.co.uk slash A Stab in the Dark. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, hashtag A Stab in the Dark. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe review us on your podcast app i know i always ask you to do it but if you enjoyed the podcast then it makes a huge difference to us if you can leave nice messages if you leave nasty ones i'll be upset but i'll get over it by doing something unspeakable to you in my next book oh and tell your friends about us as well the doors to our interview room are always open and run a strict equal opportunities policy when it comes to discussing murder and mayhem and just a quick reminder you can watch the best crime drama every day on uk tv channels alibi and drama so with that it's a huge thank you to my very special guest karen slaughter and thanks to our producers paul hirons joel porter and john lemon my name is mark billingham and thanks for listening (laughs) 